Ephesians. And if you're visiting or horrified that nothing uh, of substance has happened yet, don't worry. Um, We love God's Word in here, and uh, we take it very seriously without taking ourselves too seriously. So here we are, um, picking up our study of Matthew 5. By the way, before I read this, uh, who was here for Kyle Jacobson last week? Was I right? The guy did a great job, didn't he? He's a good guy. He's a good arsenal, good, good, uh, good uh, uh, weapon in a teaching arsenal here. So here we are, Ephesians chapter 5. We pick up our study in verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ in the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Let's pray one more time. Father, may the truth be spoken and received here today. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, this is a clip from uh, one of my favorite, favorite movies, Casablanca. Uh, If you don't know the premise, uh, Ingrid Bergman uh, is in love with this guy who's a leader in the Czechoslovakian uh, uh, resistance against the Nazis. She thinks he's dead. She falls in love with Humphrey Bogart. Then she finds out, oh, no, her husband's not dead. He was in a concentration camp. He's sick, and he needs her. Now she's stuck, and she's in love with two different guys. And this is toward the end of the movie, and this is a... A critical scene. All right. Well, I love that movie. Who's never seen Casablanca? Oh, man, you got to see it. It's awesome. But, you know, that scene, uh, we, we see it every year at the Orpheum, and we have for a couple decades. I've seen that movie probably more than any movie I've ever seen in my life, and I love that scene. And um, I remember one year at the Orpheum, I may have told you this in the past, but we watched that movie in the Orpheum probably, I don't know, eight or nine years ago, and at that scene... Probably a dozen women in the crowd sneered and ridiculed it, and they were disgusted by it because this idea that somebody would think for both of us, for all of us. And uh, for me, I tear up every time (laughs) at that scene because I think it's one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen. It's actually ironic that anybody would be offended by that because if anyone ever had reason to be confused, it's poor Ilsa who thinks her husband's dead. Now she's in love with these two guys. She doesn't know what to do. What could be more confusing than that? What could possibly be more confusing? And she says, please, you'll have to think for both of us, for all of us. And Humphrey Bogart ends up doing the unthinkable, which is by his own self-sacrifice, he lets her go and does what is best for her. I mean, it's just this sacrificial move on his part. He puts his own interests before hers, and she entrusts him with her love and to do the right thing. And ladies and gentlemen, I start that way because that's what Christ did for us. (laughs) 
And that's how we, we receive the love that he's given us. He put his own interests aside to give us what we needed the most, and then we rely on him and receive what he did. So back to our study here. You know, we took a couple weeks off, and then Kyle taught. And to refresh you, to bring you back up to speed with where we are in this passage, we have learned thus far that sinners have nothing to offer God. Just read chapter 2 of Ephesians, and uh, it starts out, You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Uh, that's the walking dead. I don't know if you've ever seen a dead person, but uh, uh, they don't look like they can do too much, and they really can't help you very much. And um, that's what the Bible says about us, that we were spiritually dead. We were walking around this earth, it's true, but dead in our transgressions and sins, that's a spiritual matter. So we've learned that thus far. We've also learned that God has accomplished all we need in Jesus Christ. If you uh, would just read chapter 1, I, just, I challenge you, go home at some point in the next seven days, read Ephesians chapter 1 slowly and out loud and by yourself. And I don't mean sing-songy. I mean hunched over it, prayerfully, slowly contemplating each line. Chapter 1 of Ephesians will change you. Um, we have learned that uh, Christ has accomplished what we need. God has supplied it in him. We've also learned that all believers are all the same uh, and are just as rescued as the other. So we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We're just as much in need of a Savior. One sin separates you from the holiness of God for all eternity. All of us are guilty. All of us created in God's image. All of us have fallen, and we who have received Christ are all on equal footing and value and rescue. We've also learned that God's desire then for the church is uh, seen in, uh, oh, a couple things. Uh, you know, in, in, in chapter 4, verse th- 3, we're supposed to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And in uh, chapter 521, it says that we're to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Why is that holy, W-H-O-L-L-Y, logical? It's holy logical because we've all been rescued by the same blood of the Lamb. And God loves us and God has collected us up and God wants us to be in his household, the scriptures say. And then the last thing we learned here that I'd like to bring us up to speed on is this. That um, faithfully living the Christian life. Faithfully just living this thing that we call the Christian life, living a life of grace, isn't that much different in some sense to coming to Christ in the first place. When you come to the cross in the first place, you say, save me, forgive me, not forgive some of what I've done, but forgive me, forgive all of the wrong that I've done, save me, rescue me. Um, I surrender. Those are, those are words of uh, saving faith at the cross. I surrender. And uh, I come with my whole self to the cross. I mean, if you come to Jesus Christ, you know what that is. Well, I'm saying that the Christian life in its, its, all its aspects are, is, not, is not unlike that. What God wants is our whole selves all the time in this life. And that means the demands are just as great. He wants our minds our bodies, our intellects, our resources, all that we have belongs to him. And we say, okay, God, I don't have it all figured out, but you do. And whatever your will is, whatever you want me to do, you're the designer, you're the creator, you're my maker, you're my savior. I submit to you. What do you want me to do? How do you want me to live? What's the best design? 
Does that make sense? Well, that brings us toward our topic at hand here today. Our God and Savior has the right to charge anybody with any responsibilities that he wants. And, you know, we've already spent time in, in uh, verses um, 22 and following. Let's look at that real quick. Uh, look at verse 22, just to bring everything into context. <clears throat> God's Word says, Wives, submit to your own husbands, not all the other husbands, but submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Now, some would call that a hard teaching, but let me just tell you, that and the passage that we read here about husbands, those are roles that are assigned by God, the designer. He says this is the way a human relationship called marriage is going to work the best. So I want you to do this, and I want you to do this. And the interesting thing and the important and potent thing about both those things is that neither one of them can be accomplished apart from the Holy Spirit of God. This is not us just trying to do our best and, and uh, pull it all together. This is the Holy Spirit of God changing us, sanctifying us, making us more like Jesus Christ. And I'll also say, both of these things are beautiful. Both of these things cause us to fix our gaze upon Jesus, the heavenly bridegroom. And both of these things are activities engaged in personally by the Savior. Jesus submitted joyfully to the work and words of, and plan of God the Father. The, and he, he, he joyed to do it. The Father had a plan, and Jesus said, I will execute your plan. These aren't my words. These are the Father's words. These aren't my people. They're the people God gave me, the Father gave me. Jesus joyed to do that and carry out the Father's work. He also loved passionately. Literally. And uh, he spent himself to the uttermost, and he did whatever it took to provide the need for the object of his love. And that's a thing that can't be accomplished without the Holy Spirit as well. So, uh, what's the big idea today? The big idea is, uh, continues to be, as it has been for the last uh, month and a half or so, marriage is a picture of the church's relationship to Christ. If that's new information to you, then you better listen because you don't understand what's happening in your life. Marriage is a picture of the church's relationship to Jesus Christ. It says so in the passage here. Paul says so very specifically. So let's uh, explore that. Uh, the focus is on the husbands and our duties and roles. And we start this way. Love in the same way as the way. Uh, look at verse 28. It says, in the same way. Husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. All right, so there, there's, a, there's a lesson in that right away, right? And uh, it's, he's going to go on and talk about the body and, and, and so on. Um, so husbands are supposed to love their wives as their own bodies. I mean, nobody goes, you know, repeatedly. Uh, that doesn't feel good. And it's not good for you. And so he, and he's, the, the scripture writer is making a very clear point. Hey, the same way you would treat your own self um, you have to love your wife that way. We're going to explore that more, but let, not without this very arresting statement that just is uh, exhilarating and frightening. Uh, beginning of verse 28. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. Now, what does that mean, in the same way? 
Uh, how are we supposed to interpret this? Well, you know, it, what, what's, what's happened, what's just been said beforehand is this, that uh, we're supposed to, verse 25, love our wives as Christ loved the church. Wow, how did he do that? He gave himself up for her. What does that mean? He died. He humbled himself. He laid his own interests aside and met her need, her greatest need, and he died. And it goes on in verse 26 to say that he might sanctify her, you know, set her apart, make her holy, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself, Jesus, in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or so on, that she might be holy and, and without blemish. Well, now, obviously, for husbands to, do, to love wives in the same way can't mean that we're little saviors. And it can't mean that we're the source of holiness, that we're the source of of cleansing. Can't mean that. There's one Savior, one mediator between God and man, Jesus. However, um, I think this means that we should be full out for our wife's spiritual good and health and happiness, and more on that in a second. But I think the supreme point, if I had to say, what is that saying? In the same way we're supposed to love like Christ loved, what does that, what does that say? How, what does that mean? I think the supreme point is probably the comprehensive commitment of Christ's love to the sinner, to his bride, to his church. It's comprehensive, um, um, this redemptive love. I ask you a question. How important do you think it is for Jesus, the Son of God, the very nature of God, the very essence, the very stuff of God. How important do you think it is for Jesus to have a bride who is holy and without blemish and presented to him in splendor? Do you think that's pretty important to Jesus? It is if he's God. You know, um, how much does God care about holiness? Did anybody watch Chopped, the show Chopped? All right, well, it's kind of a Food Network show. I, I like it. They, they have a food basket. They open up, uh, and there are four ingredients in there, and these four, these four chefs have to make something out of these four weird ingredients, you know? And, um, well, there was one on last week that we saw, and <clears throat> a lady, one of, the, one of the four contestants, bless her heart, she forgot two of the four ingredients. She made them. They were on the stove. They looked fantastic. She, you could tell she knew what she was doing. She was very, you could tell she was a good cook. But when it came down to the pressure moment in the 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, she forgot two of the ingredients on the plate. And you're like, ah, well, obviously she's going to get kicked off. You can't have half the stuff not on the plate. She, she's definitely going to lose. Unless the big kind of rock and roller looking dude cuts his thumb. <laughs> and the judges, all, all the judges have a bloody thumbprint on each of their plates. And the lady survived that round because <laughs> that's a much worse infraction. Well, you just went, Ugh. the thought of a plate of food coming before you with human blood on it, Ugh. there's no way you'd eat that. Even if it's not even close to the lettuce leaf, you're going, Ugh. I mean, I have goosebumps thinking about it. It's revolting. That, ladies and gentlemen, is only a speck of the problem of sin. A God in holiness find sin revolting. Think of the feeling you just felt. Times infinity, times infinite perfection. That's, that's called uh, 
God revolting. And you know, the Bible calls God a consuming fire in Hebrews 12, 29. And you think about a consuming fire. What do you do when there are dread diseases like smallpox and other things? What do you do with the blankets and the clothing and all the infected stuff? What do you do? You burn it. God is a consuming fire and filth and iniquity and guilt and shame and death. He doesn't, he, he rebels against it. That's, that, that's the problem. And so, to apply that to our passage here, you've got a Christ who lays his life down in, in, in fullness. Think of how comprehensive that work is. And think how comprehensively, then, gentlemen, he wants us to um, respond to our wives. I think that's the idea, that in the same way husbands should love their wives in this holy, submissive love to the Savior in a way that's comprehensive toward the wife that has been entrusted to this man's care. Well, that's a, that's a lofty thing. It's a scary thing, and it's a thing that causes us to um, be reliant upon the Holy Spirit if we're supposed to love with such precision, so holistically that we care about every aspect of her humanity and her womanhood. That's a deep love, my brothers. It's a different love. It's not the kind of love you can drum up or your pals. Um, It's a Holy um, Spirit-caused love, and that's what we're called to do, brothers. Not merely uh, cohabitate with our wives if you want to apply all this to your life. We're not just to be a little uh, friendly little roommate to our wives. We're not just to tolerate them. We're not just to pay for shoes and mani-pedis and, and, uh, you know, all the other trappings uh, and tens and thousands of dollars worth of kid stuff. That's not just your whole role is to just come home and plop down and find a place to, to hibernate. God will hold you responsible, men, for the thorough superintending of your home sacrificially. Sacrificial, costly, holistic, comprehensive love. That's the application of our first point. Second point, don't be so hard on the unity candle. (laughs) You know, uh, when I was growing up, the unity candle was like in every wedding you went to. And it was new at the time, too. You know, we, you know, when I was growing up, it was like these hippie weddings where tuxedo pants had bell bottoms and people had mutton chops and mustaches and stuff. It was all kind of oily and gritty and 70s cool, you know. And this, all of a sudden, there's this unity candle. And you're like, oh, well, one day when I get married, I'm going to have a unity candle. And you, you have the, the big fat candle, and, and it's not lit. And then you have the other two candles, and they both come up, and they go, and they, and they put them down. And then people started going, well, I Oh, now that everybody started doing it. Then it became controversial. Well, wait a second now. Should we blow out the other two or not? Should we leave them lit? Because, you know, the criticism was, well, you're both still individual people. You don't give up your identity. Uh, my goodness, should we keep it? And uh, so what happened? So, and then it kind of went out of fashion. But, you know, as I've been studying this and I've been thinking about that unity candle, it's really not that bad of an idea. And I think you can't blow out the candles and, and just have the main one lit. And I think the, the rub against doing that is probably that uh, we lived uh, in a modern, leaning toward postmodern society where people want their identity and they don't want to give up their rights and privileges and their checking account and all that stuff. And, uh, and so it kind of went out of vogue. But ladies and gentlemen, um, I'm here to tell you that it may help this illust- it may be a great illustration for what's being taught here. You look at verse 31. It says, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother... And hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And it's amazing, too. He goes on to say and make this very distinct and powerful reference in in verse 32. He says, this mystery is profound. Yeah, it is. 
And he goes, and I am saying that it refers to Christ in the church. That's where I get that big point up there. Not making it up. That marriage is a picture of the church's relationship to Jesus. The intimacy with which he loves. It's a profound mystery. And then Paul returns and says, hey, yeah, profound mystery. It means about, but it applies to your marriage too. He's writing on two different planes. So to illustrate, he says this in verse 28. Look at it. He says, in the same way. Husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. And then look at verse 29. He says, look, think about it. He's using, you know, kind of a little bit of sarcasm in there. He goes, hey, ding-dongs, listen. Uh, I just added that. He says, uh, no one ever hated his own flesh. Come on, think about it. But you nourish and you cherish it. Just as Christ does the church because we're members of his body. And then he says, hey, therefore, if a man, man leaves his father and mother. And you think about that. If you break your ankle, your whole body knows it. It's not just, well, that's just my ankle. Everything else is fine. No, your whole body knows it. Your whole body feels it. Your whole body limps. Your whole body groans with a broken ankle. Your whole body strives to preserve itself. And an application for you and concerning godly marriage and a man loving his wife sacrificially is, gentlemen, this one flesh reality means that you are never to think of yourself independently ever again. Your life is mingled with another person's, and what happens to her happens to you. It's like it's your own body. What you do at work is a part of her life. What you care about is a part of her life. What she had for lunch at Holiday Ham is important for you to know. You think, oh, it's not. What's the big deal? And I'll tell you this, too. I, I, we just ate at Jay Alexander's. We hadn't been there for years. And we just ate at Jay Alexander's and sat in a booth almost near another booth where I saw a lady from our church with her girlfriends. And uh, this was years and years and years. I mean, this is 15 years ago. And I remember seeing them. I'm straying from my notes a little bit, but I remember seeing them, and I said, hey, blah, 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 and uh, I ran into her husband a few days later, and um, he didn't even know she had gone to Jay Alexander's, and I thought, ah, oh, that's kind of weird. I wonder if there's a problem in their marriage. Well, guess what? Yeah, there was a problem in their marriage, and it was as easy to see as him not knowing that she went to lunch with her girlfriends. I'm telling you, all that stuff matters, guys. Everything that's rolling around in her heart and mind. Let me tell you, I'm married to a school teacher. You know how hard that is? Oh, only because. <laughs> oh, let me qualify that. <laughs> right. Only because every day it's like Sally said to Marie, oh, what, what, Marie, is that a student or a teacher? No, it's, it's the second grade. Oh, oh, yeah, yeah. And, and Sally and Mrs. Johnson, and the, there's all these millions of names, and kids are coming in and out of classrooms every year. There's just a lot of people to keep track of. And uh, you can't fake it either. You can't be like, mm, oh, yeah, really? What was that? You know, you, you got to like, you got to zone it. You got to zone in, you know? So, gentlemen, um, if you think of yourself as only yourself, in all your various activities, be they golf or be they hunting or be they this or be they that or whatever your activities are, go ahead and have activities. But you do not have the right or privilege to think about it in your own terms uh, as your own self. And if you do, you hurt her deeply because, uh, you know, she's, she's got this feminine spider sense. And uh, 
You know, she's paying attention to all the little nuances, and all those things are very important. She knows deeply, as an image bearer of God, the kind of love that God desires her to be loved with. And if you don't supply that, she feels it very deeply. She can't make you love her. But brothers, she longs for it. And I say, bring your wife into every aspect of your existence. If you don't, you're doing it wrong. Last point, multifaceted. And by the way, we're going to pick this up more next week. Uh, There's a lot more to say. But uh, look at these words. These are all from your passage. Uh, Sacrifice, help, nourish and cherish, hold fast. Look at those in a, uh, for just a bit, a bit with me. Uh, look at verse 25. We see sacrifice and the way Jesus sacrificed. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. We also see Christ's help. We see in verse 26 that he did all these things that she might be cleansed. Her sanctified life is Jesus' steady will for his bride. He wants her to be sanctified. He wants her to be brought to the fullest spiritual point. He wants, her, he wants shalom for her. He wants her health. He wants her to be satisfied and glad. And also in verse 29, it says, nourishes and cherishes. And uh, that statement, of course, applies to all people. We all nourish and, uh, and cherish our bodies and so on. We take care of our bodies. We check. We clean. We do all these things. Um, but that's not only applied just to a, a husband's body, but to his wife's personhood. So the same way you care about your body, the same way you tend to it, clean it, the same way you deal with injuries and so on, um, it, there's this one flesh union that, um, that we're to, to um, um, take care of our wives in that powerful way. Um, I'll also add that the, the one who nourishes and cherishes is generally the person in the point of strength. I mean, if somebody needs nourishment, then the person who has the ability to, to nourish is supposed to nourish. And if somebody needs cherishing then, and somebody's in a position to cherish, then that person should cherish. And I want to show you one quick thing, and this is, this is not without controversy, but turn, if you would, to 1 Peter. Just flip about, I mean, eight pages to the right. 1 Peter 3. I want to read this and then debunk something for you. First uh, Peter three verse seven. First um, Peter three verse seven. By the way, I've never heard this preached on. I've never heard this discussed adequately, and uh, I'm glad to be the one to do it. First Peter three verse seven. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel since they are heirs with you of the grace of life so that your prayers may not be hindered. You know, what's amazing is the the controversy is over that weaker vessel line. But do you see the context? Honor her. Be understanding with her. Or God won't hear you pray. You think that's important to God? You belittle your wife? Oh, Father. No, 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 no. All right, so let's talk about this weaker vessel thing. You see that it's housed in a very 
potent package. But this weaker vessel, the weaker sex, the weaker gender, all that stuff is, has been no has been a, a source of all kinds of, of conflict. And people hate it, and they go, "Oh, the Bible's so chauvinistic." And what are we supposed to do with that? And you grow up thinking one thing, and you go, "Eh, Christians, see, it's archaic." Blah blah blah. But you know, ladies and gentlemen, there is strength and weakness in any situation. Um, we were at a little kid party yesterday for our little uh, niece, our nephew, Parker. And uh, we've got this little inherited cousin niece person or somebody. I don't know even know how to describe who she is. She's married to somebody. But she, anyway, there's this cute little girl. And you had all these little kids in the middle. And uh, Gracie is her name. And she's what, six, five or six? Let me tell you, Gracie was the boss of the situation. Um, <laughs> I mean, you could just tell. We were talking about her on the drive home just going, man, she is wired to run stuff. And uh, when there's a leadership vacuum amongst all these ding-dong children, she's like, hold on, you go there. You do this, blah, blah, blah. And she was just fun to watch. You know, she was just on top of it. And she was, she was the strong player in that situation. She rose to the top because in all situations, some are strong and some are weak. I'll give you another example of that. I'm stronger in the area of public speaking than is my wife. If Tammy got up here, now listen, if you were all like uh, uh, four foot one, she'd be like, sit down, shut up, blah, blah, blah. She'd, <laughs> she'd, she'd be great. But you put my wife in front of a room full of adults, uh, she sounds like Mr. Haney, you know, I got it out in the back of my truck. And uh, so she knows that, I know that. Okay, so I'm stronger in the area of public speaking. As soon as we go out to the car, uh, she's my navigator because I don't even know the way home half the time. I mean, I, I turn around lost in a driveway every single day. That's not an exaggeration. Every day I turn around in a driveway lost, every day. And all of a sudden in the car, I'm like, all right, you're the stronger player here. And what I'm saying to you is that stuff happens all the time. Wherever you go, somebody's in a position of strength, somebody's not. Wherever you go, like that visitor right there. I'm kind of thinking that if we got into a scuffle, I'd be dead. <laughs> Uh, on the other hand, uh, I think I could take Carol Stearns. Uh, no offense, even with all your working out, I still think that in, I throw sand in your eyes. I got all these dirty tricks. I think so. But, you know, so folks, when, when, you, when you hear a feminist agenda and all that stuff and people that you hear, I hear this over and over again, people will go, oh, men are intimidated by a strong woman. You heard that on the news? Mm, men are intimidated by a strong woman. And you hear people describe, you hear women describe themselves. Oh, how would you describe it? I'm strong. I'm a strong, I'm a strong African-American woman. That's what I am. I'm strong. Well, men aren't intimidated by strong women. Men are annoyed. <laughs> Just like all people are annoyed. All people are annoyed by anybody who has to tell you that they're strong. I'm strong. Guess what that means? You're probably not strong. If you're strong, you're just strong. You know what I mean? Nobody, you don't have to say, like, that guy, he's like, look at me. <laughs> I mean, he doesn't have to say, by the way, I'm strong. How would you describe yourself? Strong. Strong people are just strong. You don't have to tell everybody about it. All that to say, ladies and gentlemen, I'm married to the person I love the most. I mean, Tammy is my favorite person I've ever met in my life. And if I need advice from somebody or I need counsel or I need somebody to weigh into something, she's the first opinion I'll go to in, over you jokers. She's my favorite 
she's the most wonderful person in my, in my life. And so she's important, and she's strong, and we switch roles all the time. In various situations, sometimes she's stronger than me, sometimes she holds me up, and sometimes I hold her up. But in the main, she is tender. And in the main, she'll get scared by things. And uh, sometimes she's upset, and she doesn't even know why she's upset. Sometimes she's processing things, and it takes a while for her to process things. She doesn't understand even what's going on. I don't either, but she doesn't either. And I think what this is saying is, husbands, be tender to that. Just know that she's sensitive. She's more emotive than you are. She needs a tender hand. She needs a tender care. Um, I think that's, what's teaching. That, that's what that's teaching, and I think it weighs heavily into our passage here about loving sacrificially men. And we'll talk about this more next week. I close with this. Um, Chris Luke was uh, sharing with me a quote from a guy that he really likes uh, a lot, Douglas Wilson, and, um, and I, I'm not going to... I'm, I, I didn't look it up. I didn't want to read it verbatim. I just want to kind of loosely use it. But we were talking about it over dinner last night that a husband will always dominate the home and he can't not dominate the home. Even if he leaves his family, three kids, wife, dad disappears. Guess what? He still dominates his home, doesn't he? By his absence. Even if a good stepdad comes in who's wonderful and loving, this guy still has a a place in that home, doesn't he? So that when those kids grow up and they're 65 years old, they still feel what their dad did or didn't do. By his absence, by his presence, by his tenderness, by his harsh words, by a strong hand in the home or a gentle hand in the home, a man's going to dominate. And the reason a man's going to dominate is that's the way God has designed a marriage. And God has entrusted men with governing their home in the right way, in a loving way. And what we're supposed to be looking to is the Savior who sacrificed himself, who cares holistically for his bride, and will do whatever it takes to meet every need that she has. I'll tell you, ask yourselves this, gentlemen. When you look at your actions when you look at what you're about to do, when you look at what you've just said, ask yourself, is that the way Jesus would love the church? If it is, do it. If it isn't, repent. More next time, let's pray. Father, uh, we're humbled and often baffled by um, grace, by the Christian life, by the, um, the, the ways you have ordained for us. And uh, we say, Lord, give us the grace to receive truth, to see it, to desire it, and to live it. Help us, Lord, love in the way Christ loved. And we pray it in his name. Amen. Thanks, you guys. Catch you next week.